everyone. Hello. It is what night is it? No idea right now. Anyway, doesn't matter because you're listening. We are recording and it's time for another show. Welcome to Not Another Whiskey Podcast. They call me Mitch and this guy is... Daz. Mate, it's episode 20. It's episode 20, mate. Can you believe it? That nah, I can't. Um, you know, most podcasts... 99% of podcasts don't make it to the 21st episode. Do you know that? So here's the question. Go. How the fuck are we? Uh, I mean, I, have, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I, but I, I, I'm with you here. And I was looking at this as well, Daz. And if we were a married couple, right now I would have to buy you some china as a present. Is that right? Yeah. Well, so I'll buy you a wee you're giving me something. That, that would be nice, wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah. But when I see you next, I've got a gift for you. Oh, yeah? Yeah, I've got a little sample of the Ardbeg. Uh-huh. Here it is. Yeah, I'm looking forward to actually trying that since you've been sitting on it for, what, two weeks now? Uh, apologies. I, I, I do have to apologise. I haven't seen you, um, but I will see you on Friday at some point. On Friday, will, mate. Yeah, I will hand the baton over. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, Ardbeg is appropriate because... This week, we are going to get inside the mind of a distillery manager. We've got Colin Gordon on, who is the distillery manager at Ardbeg. We're going to have a good chat with him. Uh, for all you Ardbeg fans out there listening, you want to listen to this one uh, because it's a good one. He gets down and dirty with Ardbeg. He tells us what's going on there, uh, what's happened in the past, what's happening in the future. Really kind of interesting insight into what's not just what's going on at Ardbeg, but what life is like in when you live on Isla as well, right, Daz? Yeah, well, that's the thing, isn't it? So he, like us, is not from there, all right? So he's a, he's a mainlander. He's up from sort of Persia area. So I think, you know, as an outsider, uh, he's lived there for six years, seven years now. His kids go to school there and all that kind of stuff. We thought it would be quite good to spin through a few interesting facts about Isla that will not make you any friends in a bar anywhere in the world, and in particular, on Isla. Now it's time for some interesting whiskey facts that definitely won't get you any new friends on a Friday or Saturday night while standing in a bar. Might work on a Monday or Tuesday though. Okay, my first fact about Isla, AKA the Queen of the Hebrides. It's the most southerly island of the Inner Hebrides, of course, in Scotland. And it lies at the entrance at the Firth of Lorne to the west side of the Kintyre Peninsula. And there's roughly, 25 miles north of Northern Ireland. Now, Mitch, I was in Port Rush not so long ago, and you can actually see it on a lovely yes, evening. Mate. Yeah. So the trip that you didn't make when it was really crystal clear and about 25 degrees centigrade, you could actually see it from, uh, I think we're standing at Arbeg on the, the piers. You were looking at Port Rush probably. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Incredible. Uh, Bowmore is home to the oldest whiskey maturation warehouse. It was established in 1779, uh, and Bowmore is also the oldest distillery on Isla. Right. Although Isla had illicit stills after the introduction of the excise tax on whiskey, um, the excise man only set foot on Isla for the first time in 1797, over 100 years after that excise act was put in place, which is quite incredible. And it's said that it's because the natives on Isla were regarded as wild and barbarous people. Oh, I'm, I'm sure they look, I'm sure they wear that with a badge of honor, actually. That's, that's quite a cool thing. Yeah. See, it's good. interesting there because you said Isla the second time 
but then the first time you said Eile. Oh, did I? Yeah. And my East and Coast I've had accent. this conversation with a few people because the pronunciation is done both ways, right? I would say Isla usually. I've I've heard you say it the other way before though. Uh, I'm not saying I don't say it the other way. But I think yeah, I think I... my initial thinking would be Isla, because we're on the East Coast. So we don't yeah. have that lilt. Yeah. Uh, you know, I pick up these things after after 20 episodes, man. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, mate. <laughs> All right. So let's talk about the population of Isla. Uh, the last census that I could find, find was uh, 2011, where Isla had 3,228 inhabitants, 1,000 of which live in Bomore. Uh, and there is 1,479 households spread across 62,017 acres sorry, hectares. Mm. Um, so this results in the density population of 0.06 people per hectare. Uh, I don't know. I, that's kind of some big stats, man. I don't know. Those the last time you were on Isla, did you stand like ticking a little, <laughs> a little clipboard? Just like every time somebody walked past you, went, oh, there's another one. There's one. Clock him down. Um, But yeah, the population, they were saying the population has declined by 7% in the last 10 years. So that was from 2001 to 2011. It'd be interesting to see what it is now, because I know that sort of population is rising a little bit in islands and and the highlands of Scotland. So especially after COVID, right? Mm. Yeah, yeah. Well, it'd be interesting to see. Isla is also known as a place where the world's first commercial wave-powered electrical generation station was built in the year 2000. That's quite exciting, isn't it? Hmm. At one time, there was 23 distilleries in operation on the island, and Daz is going to name them all. Uh, I'm not. Um, <laughs> Isla has a relatively mild climate. Of course, it's warmed by the waters of the Gulf Stream, and that means that it's pretty well sheltered from the Atlantic. So it's actually quite a quite a easy on the eye place to look at, isn't it? It's very calm, very serene. I'm hoping for some of that mild climate in April because I'm going to be doing a three-day bikepacking trip on Isla Endura. So I'm hoping for decent weather during that time. Nice. Uh, so there you go, guys. There's some uh, interesting facts about Isla that won't get you any new friends. All right, so we're going to hear from Colin Gordon in just a second, who is the distillery manager at Ardbeg, which was men- mentioned already. And all-round great chap. I mean, just such, such a nice guy, as, as most people are within the whiskey industry. Um, before we do, Daz, let's chat about distillery managers and kind of explain to everyone what that role entails if they've never went, met one before or read about one. So I'm going to let you, you start off with this, man. Okay, well, I mean, I've never been one. Um, I've worked with many, um, and, and I've worked with different generations of distillery managers as well. And and there is, there is a, a new school and an old school, I think it's there's a clear there's a clear difference between the two. And what I would say is, is about the the old school is that there was there was probably more longevity in the role in the old school. You know, I think a lot of the distillery managers that maybe started off in their careers in the seventies and into the, even the early eighties, um, if they were recruiting distillery managers in the early eighties with closures and things, but you know these guys tended to stay at a single distillery or certainly at one or two distilleries in a certain area for long periods of time. Mickey Heads is a good example of that, who, who just retired from Ardbeg because he was he was over on Jura as well uh, in the years prior. So, you know, these guys maybe did 10-year stints at some of these distilleries, which was much more common. I think today, because of the way that the businesses are set up, you know, a Diageo, let's use them as an example, 
28 distilleries. And most of the guys do like a two-year rotation. You know, they do two years here, they do two years at the next one, and it's about building up their expertise, their experience, and they take on bigger projects as they move through their career. But they are asked to move around a lot, and it's expected of the role. And the other thing I would say that's maybe changed, perhaps it hasn't changed, but maybe the expectations changed, is the distillery managers in the past that I met when I started working in whiskey uh, were guys like Jim McEwen, you know, um, who, who you'd meet at a whiskey event or something like that. And they were the kind of guest speaker, the, the top speaker. John Campbell's another one I do remember uh, seeing a number of events, doing presentations and stuff. And that ambassadorial piece is something that the old distillery managers, uh, not all of them did it, but some of them that had the charisma and the storytelling abilities and stuff chose to do it. And they were fantastic at it. And they also had all the credibility of being a distillery manager. And I think where that is today is quite interesting because I've been involved in some recruitment of distillery managers and things like that. And, and actually that's been one of the things that's been asked of them a lot now, and it's expected of them for certain brands. So, you know, if you're recruiting for a new distillery manager, can you do the job, you know, run the distillery, manage a team, health and safety, production quality, all that kind of stuff. Uh, but also can you get up on your feet and can you share the stories from the distillery? And that's now becoming expected from the distillery manager role. I don't think it was expected back in the day. I think it was just more more led by the personality that was in charge of that distillery, you know? Yeah, I'd agree with that 100%. I mean, you know, going back to our Diageo days, I remember there's some of the distillery managers helping us out at whiskey shows. Uh, and some of the time, I think when they, I mean, I don't know about you, but I remember when that, that, that started off, it was kind of novel for them. They enjoyed doing it. But then towards the end, they were a bit like, oh, well, you know, do I want to spend my weekends chatting to, to everyone at a whiskey festival? I'm not so sure. Uh, and then definitely at that point, I mean, we're going back to what, 2000, early 2000s, 2005 here. I think at that point, it wasn't expected from them. But it was it was a new thing. It was like this emerging thing where where whiskey fans wanted to get closer to the people that made it, right? So that's that's when it when it came around. But I agree with you 100%. Now it's almost like these distillery managers are are, are PR trained. You know, yeah. they're getting training in how to talk, how to present, doing all this stuff. And they're it's almost like a distillery stroke ambassador role. Yeah, no, totally it is. It's 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 a it's such an interesting sort of dynamic, um, and you're asking a lot. Now, bearing in mind, most of the distillery managers, their personality traits and types are, they're typically engineers. Mm. So they're not always extroverts. In fact, more often than not, they're not. Um, and it's not always in their interests to go out and, and share stories from brands because think about what's happening just now. We did an episode a few, a few months ago, or maybe longer, I can't remember, on sustainability. And the demand for the distillery manager's time now to implement all of what's required at some of these distilleries. Now, bearing in mind they're old distilleries, you know, they've got so much work going on to develop and improve things like carbon footprints. Where's the energy coming from? Can they recycle heat? You know, can they do things in a more efficient, sustainable way? That's going to be so high on their agenda. I'm not sure you're going to get a huge amount of time out of distillery managers over the next four or five years, because this is going to be a period of change, unlike any really in terms of what's going to happen at distilleries to yeah. get in line with this vision for, you know, becoming more sustainable. It's a, it's a really good point. I hope you're wrong uh, because I do like to see distillery managers going out doing PR for the brand. And 
you know, I, I, I think it just gives the, the whiskey fan out there uh, a closer connection to the brand when they hear from that person who's getting down and dirty and making it. Speaking of which, let's get into this interview with Colin. Let's hear what he had to say about Ardbeg. That has to be one of the most revered roles within whiskey, in fact, is the distillery manager position at the Ardbeg Distillery. And for a relatively young man, Colin, you've got a fair amount of experience under your belt, I think it's fair to say. Hi, uh, thanks for having me, guys. Um, it's been quite a journey. Um, I came into the whiskey industry. Well, the very first job I actually did in the whiskey industry, I was a tour guide for a summer at Edradour in Pitlochry back in about 2005. Didn't really know what I wanted to do. And that was a great summer, you know. Maybe you look back a lot of nostalgia, sunshine and, you know, what's a beer garden afternoons and stuff. But, uh, yeah, that, that happened uh, once. Aye, aye. Summer of 05, it was a cracker. Um, you sound the, like uh, Brian Adams, mate. <laughs> <laughs> it's time he launched that. Um, uh, but, uh, but after the oh, various bits and pieces, I ended up going to Heriot Watt. I did a master's in brewing and distilling uh, in 2011-2012. And then straight, pretty much straight after I'd finished that in the autumn of 2012, I went to work for Diageo as a trainee manager. So they ran a scheme where you would, go and, you would do like three years worth of training and learning the, the ropes and the ins and outs of running a distillery and the maltings, because they have four maltings. Um, I sort of didn't really know where I was going to start and I was excited to hear what distillery they'd be sending me to but I actually got planted at Burkhead Maltings for a nine-month stint which was uh, eye-opening but brilliant learnt loads and lots of challenges and uh, working with the sort of management team of the Maltings it's a huge place Burkhead Maltings then came to Isla to Kalila for nine months again delighted to be on Isla it was a Really exciting time working uh, under Brendan McCarran, who was senior manager at the time. Sorry about that. Uh, and uh, <laughs> I, uh, yeah, we now have to bow to him. We now us. have to bow to him every time we see him. You know, now he's a now he's a, a master rapid, distiller. <laughs> I know a rapid rise from taking a, a young trainee under his wing. Um, but no, nah, it was brilliant. I spent a lot of time at Kalila, and at the time, Kalila was like flat out and seven day production and really getting into the guts of the distillery and making some tweaks and working with a team to try to improve still run times and all that exciting stuff. Um, and then back to Speyside, or, or well, um, I went to Bucky uh, to Inchgower, which was quite different because pretty much nearly all of Inchgower ends up in blends and they make like a nutty, spicy spirit. So they ran quite differently. Like they would look for sort of cloudy wort and short fermentation times and They'd had a big upgrade at the time, so the team were settling in. So that was really good to sort of get into that. And then after that, I got put to Rose Isle Distillery, which was hugely exciting. And Gordon Winton, who had been the manager there since the day it opened in, I think, 2008 or 2009, was moving roles. And I got to spend a bit of time with Gordon. And then I was running this site, 14 stills. It was like 110,000 litres of wash split between seven wash stills it was just mad um but fantastic to learn and again a really good team and loved my time at rose isle but then that was it it was time to be signed signed off and settle into uh into a role so they moved me and rosie my wife uh, to isla and been here ever since so we did three years at port ellen maltons 
making malt and uh, heavily peated malt for lots of customers, which was challenging, but really good. Again, learned loads at Port Ellen and then I always wanted to get back to the distilleries. So up to Lagavulin for a couple of years and then we're here. Came to the end of the road and there's no turning back. This was the role that I always said I would take if it ever came up or go for, if I was ever lucky enough to get it and uh, hugely honoured and delighted to be here at Ardbeg. And going nowhere if uh, I wouldn't be moving my wife and children it's, again. What an amazing role, mate. And, you know, and I'm going to ask you a, a quick personal question here, Colin. How old are you? You don't mind me asking? Uh, I'm 37. 37, wow. I mean, what uh, big shoes to be filling, right, with, with Mickey Ed's leaving? Yeah. You're, you're jumping into that role? Uh, it was funny. Do you know, I got um, I got some, like, so, like, really kind messages. See, when it was announced and... I was absolutely buzzing. I was so excited. And a post went, <laughs> post went out on LinkedIn and somebody commented on the Glenn Morangy page, huge shoes to fill coming in after Mickey Heads. It's the equivalent of Davy Moyes coming in after Sir Alex Ferguson. I think David Moyes only lasted eight months at Man United. <laughs> so I don't know if that was a compliment. Um, but well, you've, you've done more than eight months at Ardbeg, have you not, Colin? 16 months, so Davy Moyes could have learned a lot, I think. Mate, you've, you've smashed it. You've doubled his time. Twice as successful. <laughs> <laughs> but it was huge shoes to fill because, like, I knew I know Mickey and I'd worked um, when I was at the Maltons at Port Ellen. Like, we take the vast majority of our malt from Port Ellen Maltons, so knew Mickey quite well. I sort of I learned, uh, you know, it was a, it was a huge honour to come in uh, after him. It was uh, absolutely brilliant, huge shoes to fill. Mitch has alluded to a point there, which I think is really important, isn't it? It's like you're obviously filling the boots of, of Mickey Heads, who's a legend in the industry. And, you know, we all, people who work in whiskey, we all know who he is and where he's been and things. And I, I think actually on Ardbeg, though, maybe more than other brands, um, I've been to a lot of the embassies around the world, right? Um, Ardbeg embassies, that is. And these are places that get special allocation of all your wonderful limited editions and stuff like that. Yeah. And they are, you know, these bars are packed full of Ardbeg. And usually the owner or the head bartenders and things, they know, everything about Ardbeg that there is ever to know about Ardbeg, do you know what I mean? And then you've obviously got the committee members as well. So you've got all these people who are massively into Ardbeg in a really freaky yeah. way. Oh, <laughs> you know, they're right, yeah, right it's, into it. <laughs> it's, it's like a cult though, you know? That, yeah, yeah. Like I think like the south of Isla distilleries here have like a diehard following Lafroy, Glagavul and Ardbeg, but Ardbeg just, they take it to the extreme. And, uh, yeah. and I'd saw that reaction, you know, because I would always come up to, Ardbeg Day during Face, during the Whiskey Festival, the, the last day is always Ardbeg Day. And it's one a lot of locals come to as well. And it's a brilliant vibe. And, uh, but, you know, like I, I remember arriving here, like Mickey was, you know, he was walking about getting like swamped and that because he, he's loved. He's an absolute gentleman. He's such a great guy to, to know and hugely passionate so much for Ardbeg. So it's been, uh, yeah, it was, it was, it was quite daunting, but, um, and, you know, you give me some fine words of wisdom, which was just a pat on the back saying you'll be absolutely fine. And uh, the, I think as we meet, you know, as things start to open up and we meet people coming back, the real diehard Ardbeg fans, you know, it's absolutely, uh, um, it's, it's amazing. It's really, really exciting. But they're certainly very, very passionate, you know. Yeah, it is exciting that they'll be sizing you up going, I'm not, I'm not sure about this guy, you know. <laughs> no. <laughs> Absolutely, like they'll stick in a wee test and say, "What do you think of the single cask, 1974?" And you have to, you know, you have to be on your toes. <laughs> Man, I was going to say it's probably amplified by living on Isla as well, because I know the locals there aren't shy about telling you what you're doing with the whiskey as well, right? You'd be in the co-op buying your 
your groceries. Absolutely. Like, yeah, you used, what are you, you doing with that expression? That. Yeah, I used to say that, like the maltings and that, you would find out how your malt was performing at other distilleries when you were queuing in the co-op with your loaf of bread because, <laughs> you know, other because it's such a small community, you know, all other staff from different distilleries were in at the same time. But yeah, I mean, I think it's it's such a, it's a funny thing when you end up, you know, coming to manage a site or, you know, and I'm, I'm really like, I'm genuinely honoured. I think I'm the 21st distillery manager in Ardbeg's yeah. history, but you're sort of taking on the baton and, you know, you're holding on to something that's great heritage. I mean, we've been here for, you know, over 200 years. Um, the distillery has gone through a number of phases. We've just had a big expansion. So we've just built a new still house. You know, you want to make sure everything's bang on in terms of the spirit quality that we're laying down in casks. So, yeah, I mean, the pressure's there and, you you know, you want to do as good a job you can, but... Uh, no, I'm absolutely delighted and honoured. It's uh, the place. I think there's something really, really special about any distillery. I think it's, you know, but I think there's something particularly special about Ardbeg. It's just got mm. a great vibe about it. And anyone that comes here will know that. You know, it's, a, it's a really cool place to be. So I'm delighted. What about the change then? So you, you've been to somewhere like Lagavulin, and you've been to Kalila, um, and now you've gone to Ardbeg. Now, having been to all those distilleries a number of times, um, each one is is different. Um, Ardbeg is particularly good looking as a distillery. It's really well looked after. Uh, it's well landscaped, and the, the team have done a brilliant job on the sort of front of house facilities and stuff like that. What, from your point of view, what have been the major changes? Like going from where you've been to to landing at Ardbeg. What's the stuff that's kind of surprised you, maybe from a production perspective? Like the sheer level of investment. You know, I've, I've been lucky enough since I started in the whiskey industry to be able to work on lots of projects and. You know, when I went to Kilila, just as a trainee, it was all seawater cooling. Um, you know, in the height of the summer, their loch runs quite low. And you obviously need to keep a water for um, source for mashing. <clears throat> so they would take cooling water and just sort of um, cool it from the sea. So you run the cooling water, if you like, on a loop. And um, that was a big project. And at the time, I felt it was a huge, you know, bit of investment. But over the years, you know, just continue to be able to get involved in lots of exciting projects. But then when you come to Ardbeg, you know, I remember the day I walked around, literally there's the still house. It's been built. There's four stills in it, but nothing's commissioned. Nothing's running. It's middle of COVID. And that's when Mickey just patted me on the back and says, ah, oh, you need to get this place running. You know, that was my handover. But um, <laughs> it's, I think when you come in and just see, I've worked to the stills that are beautiful and looked after, but there's something about Ardbeg, you know, we take great pride in the place. And I, I think the level of investment and, laying down for the future with projects that we do we we certainly don't scrimp and you know i think that's been really great to see that we're really going for it and, and make sure we get the volumes that we need at the right character and, and quality but the the big the, i remember one of the big differences I, when i first came here is like the levels of automation because the whiskey industry more and more is, is is very automated and you know moving to say like single man sites where you'll have literally one person running a distillery which is pretty commonplace now, especially on a lot of night shifts. Here it's always two. And the mashing is very, very manual. It's still all manual valves. And we've got like an old control panel that was fitted in 97 that the guys use. But that was really exciting to because I went and shadowed and you know I wanted to get straight away involved and understand to soak it all in because it was always going to be different moving sites. But to watch the guys mashing where you literally walking about getting a bit of a sweat on up and down the stairs and changing things where 
I've been at sites, especially, you know, at Rose Isle, which is, you know, nothing against these sites. That's the way they're set up, but it's very automated. So you literally, when you mash and you, you click a mouse and, and it goes. So I think learning that, you felt like you were really getting into proper distilling, which was uh, which was really, really exciting when we coming in. So Colin, what you're saying now is your Fitbit steps are a lot better than they were before. I think I'm at 23,000 because I was drumming again on the table there. And they're way up. <laughs> <laughs> nah, I, absolutely. I'm, I wouldn't say I'm in prime condition. I had the nurse here last week and it wasn't a great result, that, but uh, yeah, it's been uh, it's been a lot up and downstairs. It's, it's such a great mix, though, of old and modern, I think, hard day because there's new projects, but like even the, the washbacks, washbacks one to six, the original six washbacks here, it's all, you know, literally hand, you know, you're hooking up hoses, you know, moving between the washbacks and manual valves to open the steam and everything. And you can just, you sense the the, the history in the place. You know, in 97, when Glenn Morangy bought our bag and got the place going again, it was st- still the same systems that we're using for a lot of these things. So you can, you can literally feel the history. It's like the, the buildings, you know, living and breathing. It's, it's really exciting. It's crazy. Does it still feel like the distillery is coming back to life a wee bit? Because obviously it was closed, wasn't it? Um... For a good time, does it still do you, does it still feel a bit like that? Like I, I, I always wondered that yeah. from a production point of view. Do you still have that legacy of being closed and still finding stuff that you need to sort from those days? I think I think we're you pretty much there. I mean, Mickey and his kid and you know Stuart before him, um, and he came as manager in '97. And they did a huge amount of work. I mean, when you look at photos of how hard big was, it's incredible. It's like a phoenix that came out of the ashes. It's yeah, um, but they're still old systems and things that were left that you know have been stripped out and, and upgraded what you know wiring or systems and things like that but the vast majority is done but you can still feel because a lot of the guys that are on shift well there's i suppose there's less and less of them now but there's you know a couple that are still on shift that were here and um, back in the late 80s when the place was shut and you know we were owned by allied and we'd be run maybe well shut through most of the 80s but late 80s 88 89 into the early 90s, we were literally running a couple of months a year. So the changes they've seen is just unbelievable. And I mean, we're, you know, we've got 12 washbacks on site now. We've, you know, we've, we've got four stills. I mean, the, the mash tun is, is going, you know, it's it's running and it's alive. And I think it's just really positive. Everyone, I think, is just really excited for the future and to see the site doing what it has done in the past. I mean, Ardbeg had such an up and down history and ran big, big volumes in the past. So... Um, yeah, really exciting just getting that stock laid down. So we've talked about Mickey Heads already taking over them from him. You've you've got another legend that you have to to converse with, which is Doctor Bill. How's that? Oh, How's yeah. been the, has been the, the the first kind of interactions with him since you've started? Aye, brilliant. Like I actually didn't know Bill. I I, I know his uh, his son uh, Daniel came in as a trainee manager when I was at Diageo. He's now up at Talisker. Daniel's up in Sky. Um, but Bill, I hadn't met, so but I knew, like, I'm a whiskey fanatic, you know, I love my whiskey, and and I always loved Glenn Morangy, um, like, when I was, let, like, starting in whiskey, and I know that's a cliche, because people obviously get into different whiskeys when they start drinking whiskey, but I, I, I genuinely loved Glenn Morangy, original Glenn Morangy 10, when and I always thought they never made a bad whiskey. You know, I always thought Glenmorangie just went like massively under the radar, even though it was always the most popular single malt in Scotland. They just they could do no wrong. And then when I first came to Ireland, you know, when I was like in my early whiskey days, I I wasn't a huge peated whiskey drinker. Um, 
I think maybe growing up in Perthshire and going to school in Aberfeldy and that, you know, <laughs> I just, it was, there was a, a real shortage of Pete. Um, but I think when I first came here and, and really started understanding and getting into Isle of Whiskey, the first time I tried Ardbeg, like Ardbeg 10, and I remember the first time tasting Ugadal and just the richness, and I thought this is just an absolutely unbelievable whiskey. So I knew who Bill was and what he did. So I was really excited, actually, when I first met him. And we had a great chat, and I think, uh, like, hugely impressive, like, in a great team around him, like Gillian as well, who's Gillian McDonald, who does so, so much great work. But one thing that I was just so impressed with was, like, the level of innovation. And I think as an industry, Scotch whisky more and more talks about innovating and trying, and, and, and we really were quite slow off the mark, or a lot were slow off the mark, but I would say Bill wasn't, you know, he was trying loads of different stuff and he was, you know, finishing our secondary maturation. He was right at the early days of that, trying different things. And coming in here, we, we literally had a sit down probably within my first few weeks and just like a sort of a chat and talked about ideas of generating ideas for innovation, stuff that I'd never done before, but I always wanted to do. What could you do here? What would be wacky to do here? Because it's, it's our big, we can try things and, oh, it's been ace. So there's some really cool stuff that we will be doing see some of the stuff that we laid down in cask that no one really knows about that will eventually be special releases or things. I just think that's amazing. So I'm blown away. Anything you want to share with us? Give us a sneak peek. You know, I mean, Mark did it from, from Jura. So, you know, it's, know, it's a good place to share any Mark secrets on the show, mate. No, nah, like, we've done some really cool stuff, you know, whether it's from peating levels or playing about with still runs and the ways we run the stills are some really, there's some really funky stuff out there. Um, I don't think we've announced yet what our festival releases this year, but yeah. you know we're, we're um, you know we're playing about in different malts and that. So there's just it, I think Ardbeg is always such like there's always such great balance between even though we have done unpeated of course Blasder in the past, but yeah. there's always such a great balance between when you're mashing really really heavy phenol malt, you know around fifty five ppm. So you know hate like standard, it's right. it's heavy amount of phenols but by the time you know we've milled mashed it fermented right now we're fermenting about 66 to 70 hours and then through the stills and the purifier and the spirit still especially you know lots and lots of reflux copper contact you get like this unbelievable balance between these sooty heavy notes and these very very light fruity citrusy notes and you just get such wonderful balance and I think what's really interesting even in some of the like special releases fermentation that we just launched, which was a really, really long three-week fermentation, which is bonkers, really. Um, you get some really interesting different notes, but there's always this, like, citrusy, fruity note that's encouraged by the stills as well. So I think we've got such a great whiskey we can play about with. Yeah, we're going to come on to fermentation in a minute, but um, has, has Bill or any of the guys at the distillery that were there in the 80s, have, they, have you tried anything really blockbuster from the past that you just you always heard about you know or or, or that they've maybe dug out and gone look to fall in love with this distillery you need to try this this is what you need to understand about Ardbeg is there anything like that that's come up that might have been released in the past that might have been a bottled product or something I like something to taste you mean yeah 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 is there something that you the, the, the guy you know, made you try Bill or, or Vicky or anything like that that, that you thought uh, wow that's uh, a real do you know what was amazing? Because I, I tried a lot of Ardbeg and a lot of the committee and festival releases. But my first week here, Jackie uh, Thompson, who's a, again an absolute legend in the industry, has been here at the Visitor Centre since 97. 
is the chair of the Ardeg committee as well, which is brilliant. Um, Jackie, I said there's quite a few I've not tried. And down, downstairs, we've got the chairman's study and a wall of Ardegs and people's faces when they walk in that room. And it is like a pilgrimage. You know, there was a guy down there today from, uh, from Brazil, he's a huge fan, they've been saving up to come here and he sees this room. I think he would just want the door closed behind him. But um, she just said, right, I'll get you samples made up. So literally, I left with like three carrier bags full of samples, old festival bottles, like, and stuff that, you know, old single casks. But I remember trying, oh, there were a couple of beauties. Like, I had never tried alligator, you know, and everyone's like, there was a lot. The alligator advertising, like, for people listening to this, like, go on YouTube and type in our big alligator. That is truly the best advert ever written about the alligators and the peat bogs you know and I love that whole style with Ardbeg but I tried alligator and I was I was just like I this is this is absolutely brilliant and dark cove you know that was a festival bottle everyone raves about um but I, I was lucky enough I tried some um I tried some Ardbeg 17 everyone raved about Ardbeg 17 you know and it's now such a collector's item they used to have it in staff sales here for about 40 quid a bottle back in the early 2000s, and honestly, what a whiskey. You know, absolutely brilliant. And I was just like, I get it, you know. But I've been lucky enough at some festival days. There's always someone walking about with a hip flask or something exciting. But COVID doesn't stop that, because it was always been part of the great day, you know, that you get to share and try amazing versions of your own distillery's whiskey on the day. Yeah. Well, I'm going to go back to the fermentation, because you've already mentioned it, and it's it's probably one of the first times a whiskey I've tried that Mitch hasn't got a sample of yet, which makes me smile. Um, oh that makes me very, very happy. And, uh, and it doesn't take much to make Mitch angry, Colin. So th- this is one of the moments I'm going to really <laughs> again, enjoy. Again, um, with the anger thing. Yeah. Yeah. yeah <laughs> I keep bringing it up. I keep bringing it up. But um, I tasted it, and, and you, you talked about funky and strange, a, a three-week fermentation I found it quite odd. I really quite liked it. It, was, it had this really weird, like, creamy banana thing. Ah, creamy. It is creamy. Yeah. yeah. It is. It, like, the story around it is, and again, just part of Bill's mind is, um, we had a, we only had the six washbacks at the time, but there was a boiler breakdown. I think it was late 2007, and the boiler broke down. And when the boiler broke down, you can't distill your wash. That wouldn't um, have happened in your watch, would it, Colin? I can assure you those boilers are maintained <laughs> to the highest standard possible. <laughs> uh, but the um, Mickey, at the, um, at the t- he'd only been here months, I think. I don't even think he'd been here that long, phoned him, because eh, he was reporting into Bill at the time. And they literally thought they were going to have to call in customs to dispose of it. And, and customs would watch you do it as well because obviously that's litres of, of future alcohol they could tax so you would get fairly uh, hit for that and Bill just said I tell you what throw the lids off the washbacks and leave it the boiler was going to take three weeks to get the parts they needed to fix it and um, you have to be like really careful with long fermentations because they always say the longer the fermentation you tend to obviously encourage fruitier notes you know your, your yeast will have eaten all the sugar or should have converted all your sugar to ethanol by about 50 hours. So anything that's happening after that, whether it's your yeast iron or yeast autolysis and you're getting flavours or reactions from bugs in the wood or loads and loads of stuff that gives you all these different esters and congeners and flavour. But I was always taught, and a lot of people in the industry were taught, when you start fermenting after 
about 130, 140 hours, you can potentially form acrolein, which can actually be a pretty nasty substance and it can be an incredibly bad tasting note, almost like solventy. Um, you you don't want that, but literally we flung open the wash back lids and left it for three weeks to ferment. So you're encouraging lactic, you know, lactobacillus and that. And, um, I don't know if you guys have ever been to, you know, the Lambic breweries of Belgium where they have big open fermenters and they want to encourage wild yeasts and all that stuff. And literally then we've distilled it when the boiler was fixed, you know, put it away for 13 years in a mix, you know, American oak in these uh, bourbon refills. Um, and yeah, we get this like, like there is a bit of funk, a bit of fizz to it. Like, but there's, there's almost like a sort of uh, farmyardy like hay thing, which would kind of show some of that lactobacillus notes maybe, I make it sound like it's a negative thing, but it's not at all. You know, it comes together. But what I think is really interesting with it, I always think we get quite a pronounced lime note. There's always like a, especially the 10-year-old, there's a really citrusy thing going on. This sort of balance the suit and fruit. And I always think it's like lime, sherbet lime or something like that. But there's a really pronounced lemon note. Like I get that sort of creamy banana thing with fermentation, but I get like quite a distinct like lemon meringue like a really distinct lemony note, which again would show that that fermentation over that three weeks went down is a that slightly like, different route. Totally, because it's, it's like a souring, but a pleasant ah, souring. I don't, ah. that, that's, where, that's where I get a go with the creaminess. It's not, it's not like fresh whipped cream and light. You know, it's a rich, almost like a very, very rich lemon curd. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's got that kind of like, mm, that oomph, that thickness. Yeah. See, yeah. See, Colin, I'd love to join into this conversation, but Daz has had my where's sample your... for two weeks now. So you I was know. just about to say, where's this sample mix? This is not good. This is not well, good I must say it was uh, your colleague, Colin, uh, Mr. Joe Gunner, um, who, who I met a couple of weeks ago in Edinburgh. He, he dropped off the sample for me, which was very kind of him. And um, I failed to get it to Mitch, but I'm going to see Mitch on Friday and I'll give him a sample if I don't drink it before I see him. <laughs> yeah. A that caveat, was... a, very, a very strong caveat there. <laughs> I'm, I'm delighted you got a sample because that is obviously one of the big downsides we have is we have a diehard, passionate fan base all over the world. I mean, I think the committee committee members are way up, I don't know, 120, 130 or 1,000 committee members, 110 countries. This fair mutation, it was literally six washbacks worth do you know, like by the time you've distilled that, put it in cask with your losses, that is not a lot of bots. So demand always exceeds what we can make. And the trouble is getting this fair mutation out there is, 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 is really hard to get hold of a bottle. So. Do you know what's really cool, though, if you take a step back from it all? It's great to see distilleries. And I know Bill's done this quite often and he did it with the, um, I forget the name of it, but the Glenn Orange release with the Wild East. Um, uh, Alta, was it? Alta, yeah, it was, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, and now you've got this is uh, products that talk about yeast and fermentation. This is a this is a forgotten thing that almost seems in the last 10 years, very few distilleries. In fact, we're often told, don't go into that. Don't talk about that stuff. Go yeah, into the woods. It's funny. You know, yeah. And this is it's, it's, it's really important. And it shows you the, the fermentation is a great example. You can get some amazing flavor profiles if you tinker about with yeast and fermentation, as you'll know, as a. A, a previous maltster gone distiller, you know? <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, but like, yeah. it is because I think over the years, like, everyone, every distillery wants, clearly you want your new make spirit to taste as it needs to taste and knows as it needs to know. So when you've laid it down in wood, you know you're going to have consistency um, and you can play about with different wood, but yield is, is king. You know, at the end of the day, a lot of 
distilleries, it's you want to make as many liters as alcohol you can out of a ton of malt. And um, I think one thing that's like really, really interesting here is there's lots of talk about yeast and playing about with yeast, and, that. and more distilleries are starting to do it now. Where trying different varieties or you know playing about with different yeasts because there is absolutely no denying um different yeasts are going to give you different uh, different flavor compounds or different makeup of flavor uh, in your wash and uh, i think it's a really exciting conversation I, and you know it's quite funny as well because there was there's been a lot of talk in the industry for a number of years about terroir especially with barley and having worked in the mountains i personally feel by the time you've if you've grown, but say a different strain of barley in a field, whether you're in the Isla or you know the northeast of Scotland, up in east of Ross or Speyside, or it doesn't matter where you are, by the time you've malted that, milled it, mashed it, fermented it, distilled, and stuck it in a cask, I personally think the impact of the barley strain is going to be pretty limited. However, with yeast, if you're playing about with different yeast varieties, champagne yeasts and all that, you are undoubtedly see a stronger difference in flavour by playing about with yeast. So yeah, the industry's getting wise to it now and there's some really interesting stuff coming out where people are distilling quite interesting things. But I think it just shows how far we've come with innovation because there's stuff that just wouldn't have happened 10 years ago that lots of distilleries are trying now and it's especially us at the forefront. And you see that with the lighthouse that Glen Moringer, you know, we've just built an innovation distillery up in Tain. And it's hugely exciting. It'll be brilliant to see what stuff starts coming out of that in the next year or two. It is really refreshing to see, and it's obviously been pushed by people like Dr. Bill, and I would say as well, a lot of these new distilleries that are, are definitely really, they, they don't have to have that yield. They're small distilleries, so they can mess around with you know different yeast strains, different types of casks, and 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 see what's happening there. You know, so yeah, it's 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 yeah. interesting times for Scotch whiskey for sure. Yeah, let's move absolutely. away from like the production side a little bit, Colin. Let's chat about you living on Isla. Have you been accepted into the community now after what's that <laughs> six years? I'd like to think so. Um, yeah, I mean, we've got great friends here. Like, I know it's a real cliche when people say, I know it's very, it's very friendly, but clearly, like, I, I mean, I, I grew up in Dunkeld, which I don't know, was probably 1,500 folk or 2,000 people. And um, Isla, there's 3,000, but I know far more people on Isla than I do back in Perthshire, you know, like, and we've only been here, well, properly six six seven years and um yeah like we've made really good friends we've got a tight knit friends i think it helps having children as well you know because we've got two wee girls and our eldest daughter Ailey is in primary two in port ellen um but yeah i, I think people like when you move to somewhere like isla to work i think when you're you know you're respectful and just genuinely want to just get on with people and, and do a good job and people know you're here for the long term and you I think people will always be really receptive to that and, and welcome you. I think like anywhere in a small community, if they see you coming in for your own personal game, short term, it's never going to work out well, but genuinely it is a very, very friendly place. And uh, I love it here. I always say to people, it's one of the friendliest places in Scotland. I remember the first time going there and we flew over and then on the way back, going through security, the guy who put, you know, my, my, I had to take my jacket off to go through the, the scanner. And then at the end of it, he picks my jacket up and actually put it on for me while asking me about the time that I'd had on Isla. I was like, you don't get that in Heathrow, you know? No, and, and I, remember, <laughs> I remember speaking to, like, one of the guys that comes over at the Whiskey Festival every year, one of the Swedish contingent, obviously diehard fans in Sweden for, for Ardbeg. 
Um, and he was telling me, like, he, he doesn't know people on his street in Stockholm, like his neighbours, but he'll come to Isla into the co-op and put in, they're like, how are you doing in that? Nice to see you again and stuff. And he's blown away by that. You know, that's him on Isla. Like, but he, in Sweden, he just says, you know, he wouldn't even know his neighbours in the street in Stockholm. It's really funny. Like, I remember literally the first week we moved to Isla. Honestly, we'd never set foot on the island before and we were renting a house in Port Ellen, which is getting harder and harder every year. Um, but we, we drove into Port Ellen and Google Maps, is sort of, when I put in the house number on street, you had taken me to the wrong side of the street. And I literally chapped on this guy's door. He says, oh, you must be the new Maltings manager. You're the other side of the road. He'd never even <laughs> set eyes on me. No you know? but I no, suppose the big no. removal van might have given it away. But honestly, just knew <laughs> instantly who we were. And I think the, the big removal a... van and the, and the bum bag that you were wearing, Colin. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I'm not allowed to wear that. Um, but yeah, it's uh, it's an incredible place, honestly. You know, and, and I mean, you guys come over and spend time here as well. And I think everyone's missed that as well. You know, and, and people are just oh. desperate to get back. Well, Colin, listen, it's been great. Thank you so much for your time and being on the show. Uh, pleasure to chat to you, Daz, and I look forward to to coming over to Isla soon and hanging out in person, man. Yeah, no, it's been brilliant. Thanks for having me, guys. Great podcast. Keep up the good work, boys. It's brilliant. Yeah, do you know, one of my, um, I've, I've been to Isla a lot. Um, one of my favourite experiences was with Colin. Um, and he he won't be aware of this because he probably, it's probably normal for him. But I was over in between lockdown. I actually, I went on a mad dash, went over to Jura. I had to drop some wine off at the distillery on Jura, right? Because um, it was taking up space at this unit we've got. So I drove over, uh, me and a couple of guys, we went over in a van, boom, dropped all the wine off. And we went back onto Isla. We went to the Ardview. Um, it was hilarious. So they had sectioned off the Ardview uh, pub, right? For One side was for locals and one side were for people who'd come in from outside. That was their kind of COVID protocol. But after about three or four pints, everyone just sort of smooshed together and <laughs> it didn't really kind of matter. So <laughs> we ended up in the Ardview for a few uh, with locals, Colin included, uh, Colin's sister and a few of their pals and stuff. And then we ended up on the Port Ellen Beach just enjoying a cigar and a wee dram. And that is a fabulous memory of mine from, from Isla because it, we hadn't been able to travel. It was good to catch up with those guys. We're in great company and it was that was a great moment. Yeah, nice. And that's hanging out with him. What a nice guy. Aye. And what about you, man? You've been to Isla a lot over the years. You must have done the Maltz cruises and stuff, right? Yeah, I was going to say, uh, you know, my my fondest memory was was back in Diageo days when we did the Maltz cruise where I was lucky enough to, to come from Talisker. Well, I started in Oban, went to Talisker. Uh, then all the way down to Kalila, hung out there, and then down to, to Lagavulin, and we just partied and, you know, on our own boat. And I was looking after VIPs and journalists, and yeah, it was it was immense. I remember one time we were there, we we're having a party actually on Lagavulin, and um, we're halfway through the party, and the skipper came up to us, and he's like, Mitch, got some bad news. You need to grab all our guests right now, and we need to leave in 30 minutes. And I was like, what, what What? are you talking about? Like, literally, you know, this is like 10 o'clock at night. I was like, we're meant to be staying overnight, you know, at Lagavulin. And the boat was was moored right off the distillery. Uh, turned out the tides had changed or we didn't take into, he didn't take into account the tides. And if we hadn't left then, it literally would have taken us a day to get back to the mainland because it was a sailboat. So, yeah, we had to sail overnight. So we just kind of I grabbed everyone together. We made a party of it. We went below deck and just carried on drinking. 
uh, all the way back to the mainland. But yeah, that was that was pretty crazy, man. Yeah, no, that sounds class. No, it's always there's always good moments. Eh? I mean, you've been to Lagavulin a number of times. I mean, sitting smashing oysters and and Lagavulin uh, out there is always special. Out on the pier as well, which is so beautiful. Daz Mitch's whiskey news of the week. Glen Turret has been awarded a Michelin star this week, which is quite incredible. Amazing um, news. And we were, uh, we were chatting about that this afternoon, weren't we? Mark Donald, the chef, um, in seven months with the team up there, with John Laurie and Colin Hart and these guys, they've, they've really turned something around very, very, very quickly. Now, bearing in mind, I've worked at Glen Turret, you know, or, or worked for Edrington mm. when they owned Glen Turret. And I remember the distillery very, very well. And it was very much a cafe stop-off point. You know, you could get a good sandwich and a good soup that's what they've turned that into, which is remarkable. So congratulations to them. And Jamie, of course, as well, the global ambassador over there. Well done, guys. Superb. So that's a big, big one. Um, and then I think the only other thing I would mention is the recent McAllen release, uh, the 81-year-old, The Reach. Thoughts on that, Mitch? Amazing to see such a big brand put out such a big age, age statement. Um, you know, I've always, for me, I've always kind of worried about age statements like this we're talking 81 years old here what does that do to the 10 year old to the 12 year old i mean that's still a lot of time you know and i always say to people like you have to remember that a 12 year old is still an old whiskey when it comes down to it mm. i think as we get into this older like super aged category it starts to diminish almost these 10 12 year olds out there but amazing to see it um, I kind of what, what was the price point on it like 90, 90 odd thousand pounds? Does was it something like that? 174,000 US. So, what's that in, in pounds? It's about 100 grand, it's about 110 or 120. Yeah, or something. yeah, crazy man, crazy. Yeah, I mean, it's a special bottle. Um, I've heard very mixed reviews on the hands themselves the, the, that cradle the bottle. But the, the box, uh, John Galvin, good pal of mine, uh, he's he's handcrafted that and he's an amazing carpenter you know he the stuff mm. this guy does is, is unbelievable um so it does i mean the whole thing overall does look nice um and i'll be interested to try the whiskey and i know uh uh kirsten when she's driving up and down to mcallen does listen in, does tune in every now and then so uh hopefully she saves us a wee sample you know the other big news not as big as the the mcallen 81 year old but campbelltown is going to get a new distillery for the first time in 140 years, uh, which is expected to create 20 jobs there. And this is uh, going to be done by the guys behind Rassi, the Dury Farm, I think it's called. And uh, it's going to be a farm to bottle distillery with a visitor center. Uh, it's subject to planning consent right now, but it looks like they're, they're talking about 400,000 liters a year coming out of this. But amazing to see plans for another Campbelltown distillery. You know, that's been a, been a long time since we've seen a new one down there. Yeah, no, it's great. It's great. I think what the guys have done at Rassi is superb as well. They've created a great mm. brand, um, some location. I mean, stunning, isn't it? Um, yeah. And it'll be great for them to continue their story in whiskey. And what a legacy, you know, uh, distillery on Rassi, uh, distillery, one of the first to be opened uh, in such a special location. I mean, the, the whole history of Campbelltown, I mean, I'm sure there'll be more. Uh, this won't be the last one. I'm sure of that. And then we're going to go across the water for some news over in the USA. So Angel's Envy 
which is a brand I always really enjoyed. I don't know if you've ha- ever had any Daz, but it's I have, but not much, really not as whiskey. much as I would like. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Um, so they've just released a whiskey that has been finished in ice cider casks, which kind of caught my eye a little bit, pretty mm. unusual with that going on. Um, so they've, they've been finishing um, a seven-year-old, uh, 95% rye for 364 days in, in these ice cider casks from Vermont-based Eden Speciality Ciders. Have you ever had a, an iced cider before? Yeah. No, I do I. like cider. So, so this is a limited release, which consists of just 6,000 bottles. Uh, it doesn't look like we're going to get any in the UK. It looks like it's just going to be all over in the US. Mm. Not going to be cheap, Daz. $250 a bottle. Mm-hmm. So punchy, punchy. That is episode number 20 in the bag. Who would have thought, mate? Who would have I thought? Know. And our next episode, like I say, mate, we're, we're going to be in the top 1% of podcasts ever, which is, ever. Uh, which is quite quite remarkable really um and i'm looking forward to my china bowl from you to celebrate our 20th um but guys thank you so much for listening um colin so good of you to join us and, and hear a little bit more about what's going on at ardbeg and how your Absolutely. journey is as well because he if you forget colin moved through lockdown basically you know it was right at the start of all the covid stuff so he doesn't know ardbeg in any other way really other than what's been happening through COVID. So, um, yeah, great to hear from him. And also a special mention to uh, Joey Gunner for uh, sorting us out with, with a wee sample, mate. Very, very much appreciated. That's very kind of you. Yeah, absolutely, mate. Brilliant to 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 try that, which I'm looking forward to trying, which I still mm-hmm. haven't had yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, but guys, you may have seen this week on Instagram uh, that we're looking to start some live tasting. So we've been planning that this week a little bit. Uh, go onto our website, and sign up for a newsletter because we have subscriptions now. Daz, the website is? It is www.notanotherwhiskeypodcast.com. Go on there and sign up for our newsletter uh, where you're going to get firsthand information about where we're doing our live tastings and our virtual tastings as well. So we're putting these plans in place, guys. You can then join us when you listen to the podcast, have a dram, have the drams that we're enjoying as well. And hopefully some of them will be very unusual ones, uh, ones exclusively from the distilleries that we're going to be working with on this as well. So really exciting for us to push the podcast into this kind of next level where we're going to start interacting with you, the listener, a lot more as we move forward into this year. Mate, good to see you. It's nice to see your um your head looking trim as ever. Your uh, your beard's looking sharp. Um it's brilliant. It's lovely. You're 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 just Thanks, blossoming a minute. You're blossoming this winter. <laughs> Don't know about that, mate. Um nah, great to see you, man. And thank you everyone for listening. So until next time, may all your whiskies be golden and all your dramming glasses stay in one piece. Nice. Slash. Slanger.